A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible Study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've just finished working our way through Romans chapter 1, and it's one of the gravest warnings in the Bible about the consequences of just blowing off God's commands in order to please our flesh, to just do what we want to do and justify it. Men were doing that big time in the Roman Empire in Paul's day, and of course, as you know, they're doing it big time in America today, excusing, rationalizing the most horrific kinds of sin. Now, there are people out there who are not Christians, but they consider themselves to be basically good moral people. And they're the kind of people who might 
hear what we said, at least a lot of what we said about Romans chapter one, maybe they would read over what Paul's mentioned. Here's these horrible sins that he's talking about in chapter one. And these kind of people would say, you know what? I agree with you, Paul. Those things are terrible. That's awful sin. That's really disgusting. So when Paul gets to what we call chapter two, it's as if he's taking a deep breath and says, now, I've got a word for all of you who may agree with me about what I've written in chapter one, but you don't think any of that applies to you personally. You've been kind of cheering me on, Paul might say to this point. You, you've agreed with me wholeheartedly. You've been saying, in effect, way to go, Paul. Give it to him. Amen, Paul. But Paul's saying, you must not miss what I'm about to say next. So as we begin chapter two, we realize Paul is now turning his attention to people, maybe a little bit like the self-righteous Pharisee that Jesus told us about in Luke chapter 18. You remember this parable? Let's look at it. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But Jesus goes on and says, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says what words that might have been surprising to some people of that day, might be surprising to some people of our day. He said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul knew that there would be people who were outwardly good people. They thought themselves to be good people. They would agree with what Paul said in chapter 1. They would agree that people who commit these awful sins, he talks about in chapter 1, deserve God's judgment and God's wrath. But they would think within themselves, thankfully, we're not like them. We're good folks. We're good people. Now, you know, if you've read ahead in this, this letter that Paul's writing to the Romans, you know what Paul's about to do. He's on his way to make the point that none of us is good. We're all ultimately in the same boat. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need cleansing. And we can find it only in Christ. He's going to drive that point home in chapters 2 and chapter 3. He wants them to understand the truth that there is none that does good. So we're going to begin by looking at these first 11 verses of chapter 2. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Notice beginning in verse 1, he uses the second person pronoun, you. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the same things. But he's not talking to Christians. That's clear because when we get to verse 5, he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart. See, that's not a Christian. A Christian doesn't have a hard and impenitent heart. He says, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's not written to Christians. Christians are not storing up wrath. People who don't see the need for repentance are the people who are storing up wrath. That's who he's talking about here. You remember Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. He said, God has not destined us for wrath. He's talking to Christians there. But to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christians are those who have recognized their sin and repented and turned to Christ. He's talking to people who have not repented. A little bit later in his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. Jesus said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. But the people Paul's writing to here are headed directly for God's wrath unless they repent. That's their only hope. And they're living in a dream world, a fantasy world, thinking they don't need to repent. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he's saying to them, look, you're judging others. Obviously, that means you know what's right and you know what's wrong. You know the truth. <laughs> the fact that you recognize other people have sinned, the fact that you are able to judge others proves that you know how to recognize sin. And if you can recognize sin when others are guilty of it, he said, you don't have an excuse for not recognizing it when you are guilty of it. So he's taking away an excuse here. Since they're judging others, they prove they know what sin is. But listen, guys, even we who are Christians need to be very, very careful here. Because it's pretty easy sometimes to see sin problems in other people if you know them very well. But sometimes it's difficult for us to see it in ourselves. Because we can be really, really good at rationalizing. So we look at somebody else and say, they're being proud. Me? Oh, I'm just being confident. <laughs> they're being lazy. Oh, I'm just enjoying a little much-deserved rest and relaxation. You know, guys got to have some rest. They're gossiping. 
I'm just sharing a prayer need. <laughs> They're being harsh and abrasive and unkind. I'm just trying to help other people see the truth. They're being rude. I'm just kind of hurt and honest. <laughs> They're being stingy. I'm just being thrifty and wise with my money. They're being critical. I'm just trying to help somebody see a blind spot. <laughs> you know, we could go on and on and on. We, we redefine things, sin in our own lives sometimes. We've got to be careful about that. Here's one of our problems. Most of us have been taught by our parents and our grandparents that we are really, really good. How many times do parents and grandparents tell their children, you're being such a good boy, you're being such a good little girl, you're so good. And we tend to think of ourselves as good people. We've grown up like that. Now, if we've been raised in church, we probably know that at least theoretically, we know we've sinned, but we tend to see ourselves as basically good. And our own sin sometimes seems kind of minor to us. We have to really work at getting a better biblical perspective here. Maybe we don't think our sin is really sin at all. Maybe it's really justified behavior. We can convince ourselves of that. Maybe God just understands, you know, in our case, it's different, and he'll overlook it in our case. Now, there are people out there who never really come to Christ because of those exact kind of thoughts. They've been told all their lives, they're good. They told themselves, we're good, <laughs> and they believed it. They just, they just can't imagine that God would not let them into his heaven. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm good. Paul wants these people to realize they're in grave danger. Now, they might read verse 1 and say, Paul, how can you say I'm guilty of the same things? I've not done that stuff. You think I've committed all those awful sins you talked about in chapter 1? I haven't. I'm basically good. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I've never committed those horrible sexual sins or homosexual sins. I've never done any of that stuff, Paul. How can you say I'm guilty of the same thing? But you probably already realize Paul's trying to get them to dig a little deeper and search their hearts with a little more honesty. It's true they may not have committed the specific sexual sins that Paul mentioned in chapter 1, but what is sexual sin? It's taking the good gift God's given for binding a husband and wife together in marriage and for having kids and then perverting it because of our own sinful desires. You know what Jesus said? He said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But he said, but I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And guys, let's be honest. One way or another, all of us at some time or another have perverted God's good gifts and sinned. And when we get old enough, we've perverted his gift of sex, if not physically, at least mentally. And Jesus said, if we sin with our thoughts, it's still sin. Some people get in the habit of just comparing themselves with others and come off feeling pretty good about themselves. They think, well, everybody's guilty, right? We've all sinned. So it must not be that big a deal. That's the way the world thinks. It's not the way God thinks. We live in a world that's been so successful at trivializing sin and even calling it good that it can be very, very hard for us to realize how awful it really is. We have to work at this. The entire human race, every one of us, is guilty of rebellion against God. And listen, guys, every time we choose to sin, any sin, anything that God says, don't do that, 
or he commands us to do something and we don't do that. Any sin is rebellion against our supreme commander. He's our loving God. He's the one who created us. He made us. He's the sinless one, the perfect one, the holy one. And every time we sin, we're saying to him by our behavior, I don't want you to be in charge of me. I want to do things my way this time. I think my way is better than your way. It's hard for us to come up with an analogy that helps us understand how horrific that is. I mean, you could compare it maybe to being part of a company of soldiers and and the captain says, move out. And we say, no, I don't think I want to do that. I need my rest. I'm going to stay in camp for a while. You guys go on ahead. What do you think that captain would do? What would happen to that soldier? (laughs) And disobeying God is so much more serious than disobeying an army captain. It's hard for us to internalize that. When we say no to God, we're essentially saying yes to the enemy of God, the devil. We're siding with God's enemy. That's treason. Treason against the Most High God. I wish I had a way of communicating how serious this is. We have a hard time grasping it. We are able sometimes to convince ourselves that our hearts are pretty good. But God says, no, it isn't. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Proverbs 28 says, whoever trusts in his own mind or his own heart is a fool. He who walks in wisdom will be delivered. We have a hard time seeing things from God's perspective. We have to work at this. We have to read his word and believe him. Now look again at verses two and three. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So understand what he's saying. You get it here. You repeat it again. If you can see that other people are guilty, then we know what sin is. We know what right and wrong is, and we should be able to see it in ourselves too and realize we're guilty too. If they won't escape the judgment of God, neither will we. All of us need God's mercy. All of us need his grace. All of us need his forgiveness just as much as the worst sinner in the world we can imagine. Look at verse four. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see what he's saying here? He's trying to get the attention of those who might be thinking, hey, God's blessing me, man. That must be my, whatever I'm doing is, is fine. I mean, I must not be doing anything that bad. It must not be a big deal to him. He's blessing me. Everything seems to be going really well. There are people out there, they got a pretty good job, making pretty good money, pretty nice home, pretty nice car, decent bank account. They say, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm decent folks, doing pretty well. Paul's saying, if you haven't recognized your sins, you're just presuming on God's kindness what we call his common grace. Yes, God's been good to you. God's been patient with you. Jesus said he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He blesses many of us, even though we're still in sin. And instead of interpreting wrongly that because the things are going pretty well with us, our sins must be trivial, he wants them to realize our sins are horrific God's being kind, God's being patient so that we'll realize our need for forgiveness and turn from our sins before it's too late. Look at verse five. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If we misinterpret God's patience as God's favor in spite of our sins, if we misinterpret our sins to be trivial instead of rebellion against the creator God, if we harden our hearts, there is coming a day of reckoning. God makes it very clear here and other places in his word. A day of wrath is coming. God's judgment is coming. God's patience will finally come to an end. David Guzik quoted Charles Spurgeon saying this great quote. He said, it seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impenitent, that is, he hasn't repented of his sins and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day as that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the table says, I have to support your body that still you may have space for repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak with you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be such a sermon as God would have us preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and live. Isn't that a good quote? Spurgeon's full of good quotes. In verses 6 through 11, he reminds us there's a day of reckoning coming for all of us. And there are only two possibilities. One of those possibilities he highlights in verses 7 and 10. The other possibility is in verses 8 and 9. So let's read that. He will render to each one according to his works. And here are the two possibilities. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Here's the other possibility. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God chose no partiality. Now, when we first read through that, at first glance, we might think, whoa, seems like Paul's teaching salvation by works here, (laughs) doesn't it? I mean, verse 7, he talks about patience in well-doing, doing good things. Verse 10 talks about everyone who does good. That sounds like salvation by good works. But we know, of course, he isn't because Paul's the one that God used more than anybody else to teach exactly the opposite. Even here in this letter to the Romans, look what he writes just a few paragraphs from here when we get to chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I mean, he makes it extremely clear. A little later in chapter 4, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And a little later in chapter five, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote the same kind of words to Titus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then the classic verse that many of you, I'm sure, have memorized, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
No, what Paul's talking about here is the same thing he's talking about in the very next verse in that passage we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So it's unstated here, but clearly the only ones who can exhibit the patience and well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, mentioned in verse 7, and the good deeds he mentioned in verse 10, are those in whom God's Spirit dwells, those who've been born again by repenting of sin and trusting Jesus. Remember, compare Scripture with Scripture. The outcome for those people, he says, is eternal life and glory and honor and peace. Some might say, well, I thought we already had eternal life. Well, yes, if we're trusting Jesus, we do. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. We have eternal life now. But that doesn't mean the outcome is not eternal life. The outcome is still eternal life, more eternal life, because that's the nature of eternal life, right? We have it now, and we'll have it forever. So the outcome really is eternal life. (laughs) For those who might say, wait a minute, I thought all the glory belonged to God. Well, that's true, too, but the Bible teaches we get to share in his glory. John wrote this in 1 John, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, listen to this, we shall be like him. We'll be glorified. We shall see him as he is. Here in Romans, Paul wrote, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that, listen, we may also be glorified with him. It's coming, a time of glorification. God has an awesome future for all of us who are willing to humble ourselves, acknowledge our sins, trust Jesus so he can begin his work through us. But then there's also the horror of verses 8 and 9. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. For those who refuse to repent, wrath, fury, tribulation, distress, Someone might ask, is he talking about hell? (laughs) Yes, he certainly is. But the truth is, sometimes God pours out his wrath in this life too. You remember he poured out his wrath on Egypt to force them to let his people go. He poured out his wrath on wicked mankind in the days of Noah and the flood. He poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. Book of Revelation reveals a time of great outpoured wrath of God on the earth before Jesus sets up his millennial reign. But that's not for God's kids. (laughs) To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote this, for God has not destined us for wrath. No, by Jesus' grace, by the death of Jesus on the cross, we get to escape wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul emphasizes one more thing in this section I want us to look at. He said, this is true for everybody. It's true for Jews and Gentiles. Those are the two main groups of people that people tend to think of that he was writing to. So he states it very simply in verse 11. God shows no partiality. Some Jews actually believe that just because they were biologically descended from Abraham, 
that they had to be God's favorite people. And they believed it didn't matter how they behaved. Their pedigree ensured their favor with God. Hey, look who we are. We're descendants of Abraham. Now, the sad truth is there are people today like that. They think or hope, well, look at me. I'm a member of a Baptist church. (laughs) Good folks. Or my parents were such great Christian people. I was raised in a Christian home. I support a lot of charities. I'm a good guy. I'm an American. Look at me. Somehow that means God's partial to us. No. God shows no partiality. By the way, while we're talking about partiality, God sets that standard for us too. God shows no partiality and he commands us to follow his example and not show any partiality. Sometimes we tend to show partiality to celebrities, to famous people, or to wealthy people, or to people who have lots of education or something like that. Marxism thrives on showing partiality toward a certain group of people in order to foster this constant competition, this ongoing constant revolution. And sometimes they base it on economic status. The original Marxists did that. And then they broadened it into critical theory and based it on social standing or gender, or in our day, the big one is race. I don't always understand how Chief Justice John Roberts thinks. Sometimes I have a hard time understanding him. But one thing he said that I certainly agree with, this is a quote from Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts. He said, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Pretty clear. It's a good quote. Listen to these verses from God's word. This is what God says about it. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand God shows no partiality. Ephesians chapter 6, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him, so you better not be showing partiality either. Colossians, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. James chapter 2, most likely the first book written in the New Testament. God emphasizes this. He says, through James, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, he says, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God does not show partiality, and it's a sin for us to show partiality on any basis. The so-called social justice advocates in our society are actually advocating for what God would call injustice. They believe the only way to remedy past partiality from the distant past against black people is to show present and future partiality against non-black people, mainly white people. But partiality is sin, no matter what the cultural Marxists say. They may feel high and mighty, but they're wrong. God tells us the truth about this. John Roberts is right. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is stop discriminating on the basis of race. God shows no partiality, and neither must we. But we must be wide open to the Holy Spirit as he convicts us of our sin and not make any excuses, no matter what the sin is, We all have our temptations. We must not make excuses. We need to say, yes, Lord, you're right. I need forgiveness. I need your grace. I need Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this part of your word. Lord, we certainly don't want to be like that Pharisee that Jesus called out because he was so self-righteous. And Lord, you know it's easy for us to rationalize. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to see ourselves honestly. Help us, Lord, to recognize sin is horrific. Help us to be quick to repent and agree with you so that by Jesus' grace, by the grace that Jesus gave us by dying on the cross in our place and taking that penalty and wrath for our sins there on the cross, we can have our sins forgiven. We can be cleaned. We can be become righteous all because of Jesus. Lord, help us always to agree with you. Help us never to believe the world about when it tells us falsehoods about sin. Help us, Lord, to believe you and to internalize this as well as we can, the horror, the horror of sin. And Lord, help those who might be listening who may feel self-righteous, who may feel like they're good folks, but they've never really, truly trusted Jesus. They've gone through the motions, but they've never really given themselves to you. They've never really confessed their sins and received forgiveness. I pray that right now that they might see clearly the truth about themselves. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We need Jesus, Lord. We know that. So thank you so much for Jesus. And thank you for the forgiveness of sins. It comes as soon as we just agree with you. Help us to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.